is shaking everybody it is a new episode of the wind up podcast and i am your host mike of mtga wines we're back after a one week hiatus my apologies for missing an episode last week that is totally my bad Uh, it was an unforeseen amount of circumstances between me throwing out my back two weeks ago to getting a bottling run done which meant all kinds of cellar work while barely being able to move last the last two weeks have not been the most fun i'm going to be completely honest but we got through it we got through a bottling run we got through all the cellar work we got all a lot of our actually our harvest prep done we probably have two weeks maybe a week and a half before grapes start hitting the deck uh, it is been busy in the winery, and I needed to kind of rest up, relax a little bit as best I could uh, to get all of that done. So I simply did not have the time or kind of the wherewithal to get through it. This is actually, this is some of the first days that even just standing in place. I can't even sit still. Sitting, it doesn't work for long periods of time. I'm either horizontal or I'm standing and moving. Those are the, my those are my two speeds right now. That's basically how I operate. Uh, so with that in mind... We're going to get back into it. And because it is so fresh of mind, we're going to get back into some of the kind of process within winemaking, but specifically what surrounds bottling. We talk, we've talked so much about the process in terms of winemaking, barrel selection, and aging. Uh, What we really haven't talked about is bottling. We've also touched on blending, all of these things, but we haven't really gotten into what it means to finish a wine and get it into bottle. Now, there are a ton of things to take in consideration. There are so many different opinions on how to go about certain things. Uh, I'm going to give it to you as usual, kind of from my perspective while laying out kind of the different options. Uh, Feel free to do a little bit of your own research if you're interested in any of this stuff, because this does concern some finding agents. It does concern different filtering processes. There's a lot that can go into this. And some of those we're going to dive into more detail, actually, uh, later on down the line. Very much like our wine additive episode, we're going to dive pretty hard and heavy into different filtering mechanisms and how that works. Um, as well as different things we can use to fine our wines to make sure that when they get into a bottle, they are in essence kind of quote-unquote shelf stable. Now, a lot of this bottling stuff kind of goes back to the chemistry side of things. We can actually run all kinds of different panels and labs on our wines to tell us how stable our wine is going to be. And based on those numbers, we basically have our marching orders. We can say, all right, we know exactly what's going on in here at a chemical level. We can break that down and say, here's my to-do list for the next couple of weeks to make sure that our wine gets into a bottle safely and more importantly, gets to your door and you can enjoy it at your leisure without having to worry about it spoiling. That's when all of this really comes to a head is as we're getting ready to go to bottle. Now, we talked about this in a little bit of our logistics episode, which, as it should be no surprise, is probably the least popular episode I've done. Go figure. Talking logistics about trucking and ordering glass and barrels and all kinds of things is boring. Well, I wanted to lay it out there anyway because, hey, maybe someone out there is somewhat interested about the logistics behind the wine industry. But this is also when that all comes to a head. All that planning, all those glorious logistics start coming down to the 
wire when it comes to bottling. You have your glass ordered, you have all your corks ready to go, your labels are printed, all of the good stuff. You've got it all ready to rock and now it's just time to execute it. On top of that, you've done your blending sessions. Typically, you know, your wines are ready to rock and roll. You have to put those blends together now so that they're ready to go into a bottling line or the bottling truck that you've hired to come out and bottle this wine for you. So we're going to dive into all of that, starting with finalizing those blends. Now, we've touched on blending already, but just as a quick recap, blending is basically, I describe it as, as the polish. This is just the, you know, that wax coat to make that wine shine. It's to make sure that when your wine gets in the bottle that's complete, that it is full-bodied, it is structured, it is driven or driving in the direction that you want it to go. And this is something that happened probably six weeks ago. That's typically six weeks, maybe eight weeks out is when I do my kind of quote-unquote final blending session before a bottling run. I always double, you always double check your work. We'll get to that in a minute. But that's when I say, okay, we're going to be bringing up all these wines to tank in a few weeks. They're not going to change dramatically in the next month, month and a half. Let's go ahead and see if we can't put together some really solid blends and make sure that we're ready to rock and roll. In this last blending, or sorry, in this last bottling, we were bottling five different wines. We were bottling our Napa Valley Merlot, our tried and true staple, our single barrel Merlot, kind of the reserve bottling of that. As much as I hate the word reserve, I always have to use it. Otherwise, you know, no one knows what the hell I'm talking about. Uh, number two is our red blend, the Repichage red blend. Uh, we also had our Napa Valley Cabernet go to bottle. And we had that little thing, some Blair Payton Grenache that some of you may have heard of by the HBIC herself that was going to bottle. Now for the Blair Payton, that wine was actually just one barrel that we were bottling up. So that one was easy enough, no blending necessary. It was tasting great. All we had to do was throw glass and corks and everything onto the bottling truck and it was ready to rock and roll. All of those other four wines, however, needed that polish that I was talking about. So I sat down in the cellar, pulled samples of all of them, tasted through basically what were the initial blends of just equal parts of stuff. I kind of had a good idea of what I wanted these wines to be, what the percentages were, and I used the historical record that I've used in the past, which happens to be the blends from just prior years, 2020, 2019, 2018, and so on. Now, since we have that historical record to work off of, it allows me to basically kind of line it up to knock it down. I go through and kind of recreate those blends, and I I've tasted all through these barrels at this point, and based on what that just reconstruction of those former blends are, I can figure out if these wines need a little bit of this, a little dash of that, so on and so forth. As it came to pass, our red blend needed a little bit more Merlot in it. It was just about a 50-50 blend of Merlot and Cabernet. It's closer to probably about 54 or 56% Merlot now after the blending session. Our Cabernet needed a little bit more new oak and it needed a little bit more, more Merlot. So we actually commandeered a little bit more Cabernet that was reserved for another lot and blended that in just a small amount just to give it a little bit more toastiness. But at the same time, we didn't want that to be too overpowering. So we actually kind of mitigated that just a touch with two and a half percent Merlot, just a dash to make sure that it all came together really, really nicely. The Napa Valley Merlot, luckily enough, being 100% Merlot, 
is a little bit easier. I take equal parts of all the barrels, put that together, and just make sure that that tastes great. If it doesn't, then I start tinkering amongst those barrels to make sure that, hey, maybe we're only going to use half of this barrel or maybe just X amount of gallons from certain barrels to make sure that that Napa Valley Merlot is just solid. Because it's 100% Merlot. It's, you're kind of working within a box in that sense. Where the Cabernet and the Red Blend, since we're using different varieties, uh, very different oak programs, those get a little bit more complicated when it comes to blending. A little bit more trial and error is necessary there, but nothing that you really can't tackle in an afternoon, maybe two two afternoons, just making sure that it's all dialed in and ready to rock and roll. Now, once those blends are set, I have them in my notes. I've marked the barrels. I know the gallons that I need to pull from what barrel to put into what wine. And now it's just time to make sure that all those logistics are coming <laughs> and ready to go. That our glass is going to show up on time, that we got corks coming, that we got labels coming. There was actually a misprint on one of my labels this time. One of the stupidest things I've done recently. We get that reprinted with plenty of time. Luckily enough, there's always something. I'm telling you, bottle, we're going to get to this part of bottling. There is always something. This year was kind of one of those, or this run was kind of one of those. It went really relatively smooth except for things kind of outside of it. Misprinting a label was definitely something I didn't foresee, but here we are. You spend a little extra coin making sure you get the labels that you want. That's a long story. I'm not going to get into it. It's realistically was my mistake. I'm just a dumb dumb, and I completely messed up on the label proof. as my bad. Anyway, moving on. So once all that stuff is confirmed, the things that you just miss sometimes are when you got a thrown out back and it, you, you're in a hurry to try and get stuff done, harvest around the corner, you got a lot on your mind, and things get missed. Shit happens. Anyway, once you have all that stuff, this is typically what I do. And some folks, this will be a little bit of variation in the timing, but about a week before the bottling run happens, I start bringing up all of my wines to tank. I don't know if you can hear that, like scampering in the background. One of our cats is just literally, I'm pretty sure it's Grover, the fluffy nugget that some of you have seen on our social media feed. He's got the zoomies and he is just tearing through the house right now. I had to like pause for a second to close the door even because he was just freaking out. So if you see like a random like jump cut in the middle of the video, if you're watching on YouTube, that's why we have a, a you know, a fur ball with one brain cell just pinging around the house right now. It's crazy. It's madness. If you can't hear it, then there is no crazy cat running around. So don't even worry about it. Anyway, so we start planning to bring these wines up to tank. And when we say up to tank, that simply means we're pumping the wine out of the barrels that they're in and putting them into a larger container, typically a stainless steel tank or a flex tank, which is just like a food grade plastic tank that allows us to pull all those gallons of wine together to create those blends that we have. So you're just pulling all the gallonage that you need from these barrels, one lot at a time, couple lots at a time, just making sure that everything is blended together in just the right proportions. Now, this is where it can get a little sticky because depending on your facility and what you have going on, you might be needing to filter some of these wines. So as they're coming up the tank, you're probably getting them organized for filtering. You can use pad filters and a plate and frame. You can use cross flow. There's even reverse osmosis. There's carbon fining. Uh, there's all kinds of different fining agents out there that you can use to help kind of clarify your wines. You can cold stabilize, you can heat stabilize. There's all kinds of just it's a smorgasbord of stuff and we're going to get all those and that's a whole episode on into itself but just know that leading up into this any bottling run 
there are a lot, and I mean a lot, of decisions that need to be made based on the wine you're making and what you're going to be doing with it. If you're mass producing in a wine and then you need to ship it all over the country, all, all over the world to different retailers and restaurants, you're probably going to want to make sure that that wine is as stable as humanly possible. That's as consistent as humanly possible. So there's a chance that there's going to be more manipulation involved. You might be a small producer that just has that mentality that, you know what, I don't want to take any risks. I don't want this wine to potentially have an issue. So you do all of that anyway. You might be someone like me who looks at the numbers and say, you know what, our wine's looking pretty good. We're not going to do a lot of fining. In fact, we're going to do no fining. And only on a couple of wines are we going to filter because the rest of them really don't need it. In fact, typically our Merlot, our single barrel Merlot, our Cabernet and Red Blend don't receive any filtering whatsoever. And historically, they haven't, crazy enough. The only red wine I've ever filtered was our 2020 Pinot Noir, but that is another story for another day. Um, it actually had nothing to do with the fires, oddly enough. It was a whole different issue, uh, but that's a topic that we'll talk about in that finding and filtering episode coming down the pipeline. So that's what we call a, a teaser, right? Something like that. Just a little like, hey, stay tuned for the next episode and so on and so forth. Sorry, since I'm just getting done with like a week of just crazy cellar work and lots of wine stuff, I'm definitely having a beer while I'm recording this podcast. I need a cold one. It was much, much needed. Plus, we're getting into like a little heat wave like today, tomorrow. It's been weird muggy weather with this Hurricane Hillary rolling through. I guess someone asked her about her emails again, something like that. Kidding, kidding. No political jokes while drinking beers and talking wine, right? Right. Anyway. So as we're bringing all these up the tank, it's a pretty easy decision for me. There are two wines that we have to filter. That's going to be Brittany's Grenache. That's something that we want to make sure is crisp, clean, doesn't have any issues. She actually does a lot of work with different restaurants and wine shops. So we don't want to run the risk of anything going wrong in that particular wine. And realistically, to be honest, the chemistry didn't warrant us filtering. This is just a better safe than sorry kind of thing. It's just, it's just kind of, you want to make sure that it's going to be right for everybody that it might go to and enjoy because it's going to be going to different states. It's going to be going to different locales. It needs to be stable. So we filter it. We actually have a new Cabernet uh, that we have yet to really announce or show the label of, but that's another one. It's a very young wine. It's, we bottled it after 10 months and that's something that I'm like, you know what? This is young wine. It's probably going to end up out and about a little bit more. Let's go ahead and filter this one as well. That one actually could have used it, to be quite honest. There wasn't anything overtly wrong with it that was going to allow that wine to spoil. But again, better safe than sorry. Um, and for both those filtering processes, we used a cross-flow filter. It's a membrane filter, which personally I, I really love. I think it's very soft and gentle on the wine. It's also a very easy unit that I can rent and literally plug in and operate myself out of like a wall outlet. It's so, so easy. Uh, and it just makes my, I, I've always, I've, I've, oh, for some reason, I've always had like headaches with like plate and frame filters because you got to get them like come together and tighten them down right. And I don't, I don't know, they just feel like a pain. I don't know. And I've only done a little bit of reverse osmosis and some carbon finding in the past uh, for other projects, nothing that really impacted MTGA specifically. Uh, but you know, you always have those kind of in your wheelhouse if you need them. 
So we had a couple filtering runs that we needed to do. Uh, we actually do that as close, really kind of as close to the bottling run as possible. Because if you filter too early, there is stuff that's in the wine, certain proteins and things that can kind of recoagulate and cause issues. This actually happened in February, which was probably the worst bottling run I've ever been a part of. It was a complete disaster because it was pouring rain. Uh, we had a rosé that was not ours, but I was in charge of the run. Long story, uh, but it completely, it jammed up two different sterile filters and it was just like, ugh, the, the tr guys on the truck were angry at me. We were already stressed because of how the weather was. It was just a bad scenario all the way around. So, there's, based on kind of that filtration level, that indicates to the truck what kind of equipment they need and how they're going to operate. And if something doesn't go according to plan, it means downtime on the line. People are getting paid to sit around. It makes your day just that much longer. And as a result, it just makes everybody unhappy and angsty and feisty, and it's not fun. So you're trying to mitigate all of that potential all those potential issues by making sure that the wines that need filtering are filtered appropriately at the right time and that the stuff that just is going through what we call kind of a bug catcher uh, which you know is basically to help catch you know sediment big things that'll uh, potentially make it into a bottle we make sure that that doesn't happen uh, very very easy stuff to do and just make sure that you're on top of it but if it's something like this last February where someone was supposed to filter their wine and they didn't, and I didn't know that, and it starts gumming up the works, it's such a pain in the ass, especially when you can't get a hold of that particular individual and you have questions and you're just kind of left standing there in the rain hoping for the best. Not the most fun. So again, because of all the logistics going into a bottling run, you really want to try and avoid that kind of stuff. So you're doing all that leading up maybe the week or a few days uh, before you actually start bottling because you want to make sure that you're ready to rock and roll and you're not going to have any hiccups whatsoever. Now, two days before the bottling run, and this is something that I do specifically. I know a few other winemakers that kind of follow this same trend, but two days before the bottling run is meant to happen, I do two things. One... I go back out to the winery, typically on my own, and I taste through all of the blends. I just want to sit there. I want to go through them. I want to mull them over. I take home samples to Brittany or other colleagues. I'm just like, here, try this. Let me know what you think. But it's basically just to double check my work. Because we've had, we have those blends all set and ready to go, but I also don't want the house palette or what we call the cellar palette which means you just have an inherent bias towards what you're doing. That it tastes good to you, therefore you're fine. But if someone else tastes it and they point out some little quirky thing that maybe you just are turning a blind eye to because it's your style, so to speak, then that's important feedback that you need to get. So that two-day marker before we go to bottle is a huge, huge kind of reevaluation of making sure that we are lined up and ready to knock it down. Because... If you do that, say, like early in the morning, you've got the whole day to tweak those blends if need be, and even into the next day if you need to tweak those blends at all. So you're just kind of buffering a little bit of time in case you have a little bit of extra polishing that you got to do before you go to the run. It's something that I do religiously before every bottling run. I know that's something that pretty much every winemaker that I know 
does is they always double check their work before Steph goes to the line just to make sure that they're going to line it up to knock it down and they've got nothing to worry about. The wines are in a beautiful spot and they can just execute and go for it. At that same time, if I do really enjoy you know, where the wines are at, I'm happy with where they are, that's when I go back and I also test the SO2, the uh, sulfite level, just to make sure that it's at a decent range to act as a preservative for the wines. It is something that we do add to our wines in a very low dose. I typically try and keep the uh, sulfite level at around, oh, 25 to 30 parts per million. It might be a little higher in our white wines because it does, those don't go through malactic fermentation or that uh, acid conversion. You definitely don't want that to have happen in bottle. Believe me, it's happened before. Long story. I have a lot of long stories I gotta get. I've said that like four times already. I've got so many stories to tell you guys. Oh, just when I thought, like there was this worry when I started this sidebar real quick that I was gonna run out of content for this thing. I literally thought I'm gonna get like two dozen, maybe three dozen episodes in and just like run out of stuff. And every time I do an episode, it's like, oh, I gotta talk about that. Oh, I gotta talk about that. So gosh, there's so many things, so many things I gotta get to. And we're gonna get to all of them, I promise. We will all things, all good things in due time. It'll all come around. But you know, that filtering also helps inhibit that malactic conversion from happening because you can remove the bacteria that causes it because uh, you can filter to that you know granular of a level it's pretty sweet actually to make sure that your wine stays stable as it gets into a bottle and doesn't start re-fermenting and become fizzy once it's been bottled i may or may not have a few cases of riesling that that happened to and by a few i mean like 70 something it was not a great thing to troubleshoot but you live and you learn and we'll tell that story another time perhaps Anyway, once you have everything kind of adjusted, you've double-checked your work, it's time to get to bottling, which means you show up at roughly 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning, you start hooking up hoses and pumps, you, you have the glass, corks, labels, everything organized, you've got all your logistics laid out, and basically your work order for the day. You know what wines you're starting with, what wines you're moving into, and from there, you just go for it. And hopefully, knock on wood, nothing goes wrong. But guess what? It's bottling, my friends, and everything goes wrong. If there's, I, I can't tell you how many of us in the industry will tell you this. It's probably most of us. And I am thoroughly of this opinion. Winemaking would be so much fun if we didn't have to bottle the damn stuff. It's, the, it's just such a stressful, angsty day. You've put in years of work in a lot of cases to get these wines where they are, and for some reason, something always goes wrong. I mentioned the filters getting clogged in February. I mentioned the rain that happened in February during that bottling run. Oddly enough, I don't know what I did to deserve this, this run, but it went off more or less without a hitch. There's like one thing, actually two things, two things. And this is stuff you just don't think about. This is something you would never know. And it's the dumbest thing, but it makes sense. So the bottling lines are basically a conveyor belt, right? You dump bottles, empty glass onto the conveyor belt. It moves through the machine. It sparges it with nitrogen to push all the air out. That way you're not gonna have this wine oxidize at a rapid pace. Very cool technology in my opinion. It fills the bottle up 
it creates a vacuum in said bottle to suck the cork into the bottle. It gets labeled. It, there's a foil that gets put on it if you're putting foils on it. And it, boom, goes into a case box and you're ready to rock and roll. If you're using your burgundy glass, like a Chardonnay or a Pinot Noir bottle, those bottles just rattle right through. No harm, no foul. We actually used one mold in this run that was actually this really like wide, fat bottle. So we had to use different parts on the machine. So that took a little bit of extra work, but really nothing that we couldn't handle. Took an extra like 10, 15 minutes of setup. Not a huge deal. We had another burgundy mold go, th go through. We had a couple of our Bordeaux molds. Some of you know what our Cabernet and our Red Blend bottle looks like. It's a real sexy bottle. I like it quite a bit if I do say so myself. But here's the kicker. We happen to have a specific bottle uh, that we use on our Merlot and our, uh, our Merlot, actually our Cabernet Franc. We use it on our single barrel Merlot and our Pinot Gris. It's the same mold of glass that we use for all three of them. And we've been using it forever. And we've had issues with it like somewhat before, but this run this last week, oh, it was just, it, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Because guess what? This bottle, it looks, it's such a great looking bottle. I love the look of it, but it's tapered. So the top of it is wider than the base, which means it's just naturally a top heavy bottle. Also, these things are on a conveyor belt and these bottles are clanging up against one another. Well, guess what happens when the top, that heavy tops run into one another, they fall over. They just fall over and it makes a mess. We have to have two extra people on the line just standing up bottles to make sure that the machine doesn't catch them and break them, which actually happened in this run. A bottle literally exploded in the middle of this run. Things they don't tell you about winemaking and the fun part of bottling is bottles can and have exploded on us. And it's not the most fun. It's why a lot of this machinery is actually like behind like plexiglass because you don't want shards of glass just flying everywhere. But it means you got to shut down the line. You got to clean out all the glass. Uh, Chris, shout out to Chris, who was uh, managing the line for me. He was not happy about it because that means he has to clean and sanitize the whole truck to get rid of all the wine that spilled. Uh, it's just... It makes more work for everybody and it shuts down the line. And again, you're paying people to stand around for like 15, 20 minutes. It's not great, not ideal. In the grand scheme of things, not a huge issue. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a pain. It's more work. You know, you have to pay more money for people to stand there. But you know what? If that was going to be the worst thing that happened a week ago, fine by me i'm all for it that is okay i'm sorry chris you're a champion thank you for cleaning the truck extra good after we were done with it sorry for making a mess but that's the kind of stuff you just don't think about we had another friend of ours that uh, was bottling uh, earlier in the week last week and had a hose just literally explode on him that's never fun because now you got wine going everywhere he also had the label rolls the labels come on these giant like just reels of stickers, almost like if you had to go, doesn't even buy stamps anymore. I actually do. I end up mailing a lot of stuff, which is weird, but it's like a roll of stamps, but it's just labels and they just peel off and go onto the bottles. But if the liner that they're on isn't the right one for the truck necessarily, it can actually not work quite as well. And it starts, it ends up like ripping and tearing the labels or like double labels end up getting stuck every once in a while. You will get a bottle that has like two labels on it. It does happen just because like they kind of stick together sometimes or a bottle kind of gets stuck in like the little rotator that puts the, the, the labels on. So every once in a while you have stuff like that happen. 
there's supposed to be some quality control that, you know, make sure that that doesn't end up with you. But every once in a while, you miss something and it, it, it can happen. So little stuff like that. But then for him, all of his labels were like not, they weren't coming off the right way. So they were like ripping. So he ended up with, I think it was close to like 1,200 cases of wine that he couldn't label because the labels were on the wrong material. Ugh, it's so much extra work. It's so much, because now you got to pay to get the labels printed on, you know, reprinted and put on the right thing or restuck. I don't, I don't even know if they could like unspool them and like stick them to the right thing maybe. I don't know, because you don't want to lose the adhesive that's on them. Um, it You know, you got to wait for that. You got to bring up, that's 1,200 cases. You can't do all that by hand. You're going to have to bring a truck back up to get that all labeled all over again. It's just a nightmare. That kind of stuff happens. Uh, every once in a while, you could be like us because we're out in the woods and the power goes out. And that's that. those bottling trucks are big pieces of equipment. Hopefully, you've got a generator that can actually take care of all that equipment and run it even though you're out of power. That has happened before, and we've been able to knock it out still. Ugh, man. Mm. One of my favorite things was actually from this February where it was pouring rain, you know, obviously a lot of moisture in the air. The same guy, Chris, who I was talking about, who was managing the truck, he, you know, he's checking, he actually, you know, we'll give him sample bottles of the glass we're using. That way he can make sure the machine is set up correctly. He goes to pull the first bottle out of a case, looks at it, looks at me, shakes his head, wipes his finger over the top of the bottle, just on the side of the bottle, and you see just moisture. You see condensation on the outside of the bottle. And both of us just went, oh, shit. And he's like, okay, well, we'll get to that when we get to that. Because if there's too much condensation on those bottles, the labels won't stick. And that's something you might have to deal with. Bottling's fun, right? You get to see all of your years and months of hard work come to fruition. And it's not stressful at all. You don't have to deal with things that just go wrong for no apparent reason or just sheer dumb luck of the draw. It is by far, I mean, harvest is crazy. Like we always talk about how crazy harvest is, but harvest really isn't, I don't know. I never feel stressful during harvest. Bottling on the other hand, I take harvest over bottling 10 times over. No problem. Bottling is just an absolute nightmare. There's so much stuff. And luckily for us, we can usually knock out pretty much all the wine that we have to bottle in like a day between two runs. We do a bottling run right about now, early August, mid-August, and then another one in February. That's it. If you're making a shit ton of wine, like hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, millions of cases, you have bottling runs every day, all day. You're constantly bottling wine. You got a whole team of people. You got mechanics on site. You got your own bottling lines. You got everything dialed in. I couldn't imagine. I mean, you must be, man, that, oh, that's just got to be a nightmare. Maybe it's fun. I don't know. I've never talked to anybody who actually works on one of those lines. Actually, I did know a mechanic at one point, but he, he was always like, there's always something, there's always something broken. There's always something that needs fixing, which is why you have a mechanic full time just to work on your bottling lines. That, that's how much of a pain bottling is is that you always you just have to have a mechanic laying around. And like this guy, Chris, who I've been talking about, he's that. He is a wizard in that truck. He can get things dialed in so quick, so easy, 
he makes my life oh, so simple when it comes to bottling because he just he lines it up to knock it down. If I have my stuff ready to rock and roll, I know that he's going to handle it on the other end. It helps having a vendor like that that you know and you trust and you can just boom do work it's the best that is the one shining kind of thing the like the the bright star within the shit show that bottling is is that you're usually you're all in it together <laughs> and you're just gonna you're gonna figure it out together and you're gonna make it happen together it's it's the good stuff it is the good stuff but once the dust settles your wine is all cased up it's wrapped in sh- shrink wrap it's put into the cellar, and now all you got to do, and this is what we did uh, literally uh, five days later after bottling, is it gets loaded up onto a truck, it goes to a warehouse where it stays nice and temperature controlled, and it waits until it's time to ship out to your door. And that, my friends, is bottling. It's a glorious thing, a glorious, glorious mess of things bottling is. I just, it's wild how how technologically advanced we've become in the wine industry, but somehow bottling is just still a nightmare. There's just so many moving parts. I mean, it makes sense. There's just so much that could go wrong. Inevitably, something does. And hopefully, the simplest solution is just the right one and you can continue to move forward. So, all right, we got to talk about a wine of the week. And this one's a bittersweet one. I kind of hate shouting this one out. Well, no, I don't. I love shouting this one out. But I hate that they are no longer making wine. As of 2021, 2021 was their last vintage. Uh, We've been in their wine club for years and years. Um, Phillips Hill up in Anderson Valley. They've been one of my favorite producers up there for a long, long time. Uh, Toby and Natasha. We spent a lot of time in that tasting room. We've got a bunch of their wines actually in the fridge that's right behind me. Uh, Their Pinots are fantastic, but that's where I would hang my hat with them. But their white wines are phenomenal. Uh, honestly, in my opinion, one of the best Chardonnays that Northern California has had to offer, and believe it or not, probably, arguably, what, the best Gewurztraminer in Northern California that I've had. And that's what we're shouting out today, it is their Anderson Valley Gewurztraminer. It is delicious. Uh, if you're into some different white wines, if you're into Pinot Noir, go to their Phillips Hill website, check them out. Uh, go to their wine shop, see what you can snag. I'm not exactly sure what their inventory is looking like because they are literally rolling up shop kind of as I speak. Uh, but it's worth giving them a shot before all that wine is gone. They do an amazing job. They're a great husband and wife duo and uh, worth supporting. If you're looking for a small producer just to snag some different wine, some cool stuff, get out there and have at it. It's some delicious, delicious stuff. I, of course, will leave a link uh, to Phillips Hill and specifically the Gewurz as long as it's still available. I'll leave a link to it. If not, we'll just link to their online store and their website so that you can find out more information on them. So, oh, their stuff's so good. I'm so sad that they're they're moving on to a next phase of life. I'm excited for them. I'm happy for them, but I'm very selfishly, very sad that they're not going to be that making wine anymore. It's kind of a bummer, but some good things must come to an end. So, Thank you all again for tuning in. Apologies once more for the week off last week. It's good to be back. I've been doing all kinds of stretching and exercise. The back is finally feeling better. I can move. I can stand. I can walk, which is even more important. They're like three days. Out of like 10 days, three of them, I couldn't even get off the floor. Getting out of bed, like I had to crawl out. It was a nightmare. But we're slowly but surely getting back into it. Don't worry. Already have had doctor's appointments, got PT lined up where, I mean, harvest is coming. I got to be ready to rock and roll. So can't let a, 
you know, let a 98,000-year-old back that I have in my 36-year-old body hold me down for some reason. It's dumb. But here we go. We'll figure it out. Please continue to share this podcast with your friends. Hit like, hit subscribe if you're on YouTube, if you're watching this through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're finding this. Uh, please make sure that uh, you support. That's the best way is to share and subscribe and get more downloads. That way we keep working on improving the algorithm and all that good stuff. Uh, this next week, we are going to be doing our August Q&A. If you have not submitted your questions for the August question and answer episode, please make sure you do so soon. Uh, you can leave those in the comment section underneath the video uh, on YouTube. You can find us on our social media, just at MTGA Wands, whether it's Instagram, uh, Twitter, X, Zitter, Exeter, whatever fucking Elon Musk is calling it. I don't know. Um, or go to our website, mtgawines.com. Scroll down to the bottom. There's a little form that you can fill out and just shoot us a quick email with any questions that you have. We're going to try and tackle. We always try and tackle uh, probably four to six questions or so every month at the end of the month. So if you want to submit yours, please make sure you do so soon because we'll be recording that here shortly. Thanks all once again. Take care. Take it easy. We'll see you next week.